Punks. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the show. We have a really fantastic one for you today, brought by Tori Bateman. Tori grew up in the Church of the Brethren. Previously, she served in the Church's Office of Peacebuilding and Policy in Washington, D.C., and now she works for the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker-based service and advocacy organization working to bring about a just world. Tori is here to bring us an interview with the leaders of the Center on Conscience and War, an anti-war organization based in Washington, D.C., that's dedicated to defending and extending the rights of conscientious objectors. The conversation touches on the United States Selective Service, as well as the broader forces of militarism in our culture, and especially how they pressure and sometimes force young people to accept and embrace the false logic of violence and war as an acceptable way to achieve the United States security or to advance its interests. This is a truly fantastic conversation, as I said, and it taught me a lot about the history of conscription in the United States, as well as why the fact that we don't have an active draft right now does not mean that we should feel comfortable with the selective service status quo. I enjoyed listening a lot, and I know that you're going to too. So with that, I'll give it over to Tori. Hey, everybody. My name is Tori Bateman, and I work as a policy advocacy coordinator at the American Friends Service Committee. And I grew up in the Church of the Brethren, so it's good to be here with you all today. I'm joined by Bill and Maria from the Center on Conscience and War. Uh, hey, Maria and Bill. Good to see you. Yeah. Hi, Tori. Today, we're going to be talking about the many ways that militarism is imposed on young people in the United States. Uh, this is something that Maria and Bill, in their roles, have been working on for a very long time. 
militarism is the idea that a country needs to have a powerful military in order to forcefully, often violently defend the national interest, you know, whatever is good for the country. And this is something, militarism is something that is in direct opposition to a lot of the values that I grew up with in the Church of the Brethren, where we have a really heavy focus on things like peace building. Um, this is both because we reject the idea, you know, that violence is a legitimate tool, that, that war is a, is a good way to solve problems. But also, I think it's uh, in opposition to a lot of the values that I grew up with because of the idea that we need to deny other people their well-being in order to defend our own, right, across national lines. So we see a, an, another way of being here. You know, it's not us against other nations, but it's all of humanity against humanity's problems. Unfortunately, the country as a whole is not there. Uh, youth today are still being constantly bombarded with militarism, whether it's seeing the United States as many wars, having our tax dollars used for a massive Pentagon budget, or more directly being asked to join the military itself. And that more direct ask is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, the selective service system and military recruitment are two ways that the military has a really direct impact on young people and organizations like the American Friends Service Committee and the Center on Conscience and War have been pushing back against the ways that that is hurting people today. The selective service system is one in particular that impacts every person assigned male at birth that resides in the United States. And Maria and Bill have a long history of working on this issue in particular. Uh, Maria and Bill, can you tell us what the selective service system is? The selective service system is basically a federal agency, an agency of the federal government that exists for the purpose of drafting people into the military, forcing people into the military who are not otherwise inclined to join the military. Um, so, I mean, that, that at its core is, is what it is. Although there's not currently an active draft where they're forcing people into the, into the military, uh, there is registration for the draft, and, uh, and that's part of their you know, getting ready for, um, for a draft if they feel that uh, we need it. Uh, and so uh, according to current federal law, those who are assigned male at birth are required to register when they turn 18. It applies to all U.S. citizens, no matter where they live. And it also applies uh, to all residents of the United States, no matter what country their citizenship is with. So there's this requirement to register for the draft through this selective service system. What happens if somebody doesn't register? Well, we know that most people in the last 40 years have been registered passively. So many people may not even know that they have been registered. They may have been registered through their application for financial aid. They may have been registered through their application for a driver's license or a state ID. Most people who have registered have been coerced into registering through these other means. However, if you're able to uh, circumvent those other ways and you fail to register simply by accident or you are unable to register for reasons of conscience or religious or moral belief, you could be denied several public resources that the rest of us take for granted, such as access to a driver's license or a state ID. 
you are denied federal job training programs. You could be denied employment with state agencies in certain states where you live, and you will be denied federal jobs with federal executive agencies. So, for example, the Center on Conscience and War receives calls regularly from people who have been affected by these penalties. For example, we received a phone call from a parent of a 33-year-old scientist, a geologist, who, for reasons of conscience, was unable to register when he was 18. And he was now a geologist looking to work for the U.S. Geological Service or for the Park Service, different federal agencies where his expertise would be put to good use on things such as watershed protection, natural resources protection, adapting to the realities of climate change, things like that. However, this young man could not secure employment with any of these federal agencies, nor could he remedy the situation with Selective Service because Selective Service will not take your registration after the age of 26. So anyone that has been punished by these penalties and they're over the age of 26, they have no recourse. Up until the academic year 2021-2022, it was a requirement for anyone seeking federal financial aid to be registered with Selective Service. Now, even though the law has changed and no one needs to be registered with Selective Service to receive federal student aid, you still have to be registered in 25 states to receive state financial aid or to go to state colleges or universities. And certainly over the decades that that has been a requirement, many, many people have lost opportunities to attend college because they haven't had the financial means to do so. Failure to register with Selective Service is considered a felony-level offense, yet no one has been prosecuted since the 1980s. So that means that any of these penalties that are imposed on people are done without due process. They are imposed what's called extrajudicially. That means that the person who is punished has not been charged with a crime. They haven't gone to court to make a defense for themselves, like a defense based on their religious beliefs, why they violated the law, because it was something that was, you know, something, it was part of a deeply held belief. It was part of their practice of their faith or their religion or their moral beliefs. Uh, they have not been convicted, yet they have been punished. And Outside of registering, if you're still under the age of 26, there's no way to remedy this. There's no way for anyone to get their rights restored. So this is clearly a process that is not only very un-American, um, but very, uh, very much in opposition to our values as a democratic society. Thanks, Maria. You mentioned, you know, all of these pretty horrible extrajudicial penalties that people are facing, knowing that those are out there and that this could really, you know, hurt you job-wise, financially, why might somebody not register for the draft, even with all these punishments? In some cases, um, people really don't know about it or don't really take it that seriously, or in some cases, maybe people don't trust the government. Um, and and that, and actually, that, that's a very real issue because Although the law requires males to register, 
the government has also interpreted people registering as support for their military policies. And in fact, the whole registration was started by Jimmy Carter back in 1980 because the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. And he wanted to show that the U.S. was ready to you know, go to war if necessary. And that's why he started the registration. So there's a lot of folks who were saying, okay, the law requires that I do this, but then it's going to be interpreted as me supporting these military policies that I don't support. And so that's, that's another reason why a lot of folks don't register. And there is a provision uh, in the draft law for conscientious objection. This is basically people who, because of their ethical, moral, or religious beliefs, feel that it is wrong to participate in war. If you feel that way, and if there is an active draft and you are drafted, if you apply and if you are successful going through the process, uh, you could do alternative service as a civilian, some kind of work that would benefit the community uh, instead of going into the military. So, so that is an option for people. But first of all, you have to know about it. Secondly, you have to put together a, a written application in which you lay out your beliefs and how your beliefs you know, came about and explain how your beliefs really are important in your life and influence choices you make and things like that. And you go before a draft board that is quite often pretty hostile to those kind of beliefs. And so it can be a very uh, difficult uh, kind of uh, experience for folks. And so that's why some people don't register. They say, why should I subject myself to that? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a decent person who believes in peace and uh, cooperation in the world, and yet the government's forcing me to, into this whole process, which I think is just wrong, and I'm not going to cooperate with it. Um, I mean, I myself, I faced the draft back when there was an active draft during the Vietnam War, and I was a conscientious objector, and I had a pretty traditional kind of Christian claim. You know, I, I was at that point, I was planning to be a minister. I was actually accepted at the seminary, was heading into seminary, and my conscientious objector application was, you know, pretty standard stuff. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and things like that. Turn the other cheek. And my draft board turned me down. Okay, and I and I went before, and I had the support of my minister. Um, I, you know, I. I remember going before that draft board. There were, I think there were six of them. They were all older men. They were clearly hostile to my beliefs. And yeah, here I was, here I was some 20-year-old kid, you know, sitting there in front of, you know, a half a dozen of these older men grilling me about my beliefs. And then in the end, they turned me down. So a lot of folks say, why would I want to put myself through all that? And I certainly understand why they... Why they wouldn't? I think if I were facing it now, I probably wouldn't register. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. You know, but at the time, you know, I didn't know any better, and, and I did register. How has registration hurt people recently? You know, this is obviously something that came up a lot uh, in the past. But how is this relevant to folks who are registering now? It's a very um, hostile position that people are put in with respect to facing selective service registration because it's it's very easy if you have you know, access to resources. If you have, you know, privilege in our culture, you might be able to weather the storm um, and and handle these penalties and move forward with your life unencumbered. But if you're someone who already lives on the margins of our society, you live in poverty, you're a person of color, you are a non-traditional um, person in, in other respects, um, 
it may be very much more difficult for you to take a stand. Um, and you're being asked uh, very directly to compromise your most deeply held beliefs. So what's the greater harm there? I mean, the consequences of violating the law are are known and are able to be measured, but they are still very harsh for some people. The consequences of violating your conscience are infinite. We're not even um, aware of how deeply those types of wounds can go. And that makes me think of a call we received recently by a family of Afghan refugees, by their attorney, actually, their immigration attorney, who called us and wanted some help for this family. Because not only was the entire family, through their naturalization process, being asked to take an oath to bear arms for the country, which they could not do, and there is an accommodation for conscientious objectors through the naturalization process, their young family member, a young son who was 18 years old, was being asked to register with Selective Service. And his citizenship would be delayed for at least five years if he were to refuse to register. This was so traumatizing for this young man. So thinking about an 18-year-old young man from Afghanistan, that means his entire life has been lived under the shadow of war and occupation. And now he came to the U.S. as a refugee, came to the U.S. for safety, for shelter, for healing. And he was being asked to register for the U.S. draft. As we've talked about, there's no active draft in this country, so it's unlikely that he would actually be asked to to bear arms to fight for the country to engage in war actively. But by signing up with Selective Service, he would be putting his name on a list that would be furnished to the Department of Defense and would be used as a recruiting tool. This young man could very likely face in his future receiving aggressive phone calls from military recruiters, paraphernalia that could have disturbing images, traumatizing images for this already traumatized young man. So it's something that maybe we don't think about, that maybe if if we walk through the world with a certain kind of privilege, that maybe we're not going to be touched by these things. But other people with different lived experiences being asked to engage in these things that might be... In, in deep violation of their beliefs and very traumatizing or crippling for their future, I think it's important for us to take into consideration their experience too. And of course, it's our position that uh, we abolish selective service for everyone. Yeah, you mentioned selective service abolition. That's something that would have to be done by Congress. And interestingly, the issue of selective service has come up in Congress over the past two years pretty extensively. Uh, But they haven't been talking about, you know, these unfair punishments or the civil and religious liberties issues that we've been talking about that are really central to the issue of selective service and the draft. Um, Instead, they're trying to actually expand the selective service system and uh, have women be registering as well. Uh, On one side of the argument that we've seen in Congress, mostly Democrats, the argument is that there is a gender equity issue. Um, On the other side, mostly Republicans there's sort of this don't draft our daughters effort, which is it has much more of a conservative view on the role of women in the military and in society. But that conversation is really divorced from the actual issues behind the selective service system. It ignores the fact that there's a, you know, a truly equal option here where we would abolish the selective service system for everyone, regardless of gender, instead of trying to expand what's already an unfair, unjust system to more people. Maria and Bill, could you talk a little bit about why abolition is the best option here? 
The current mail-only registration is unconstitutional. Uh, It's obviously an unequal system. But forcing women to register for the draft, forcing women to potentially bear arms for the country is not the path to equality. It does nothing to forward women's advancement in our society. It does nothing even to forward uh, women's advancement uh, through the military. All roles are open to women in the military currently if they choose to take them. And there are certainly better ways that we can be protecting the quality of lives for women, both in the civilian world and in the military world, that don't involve forced conscription or forced registration for conscription. So actually abolishing selective service for everyone is the best way to remain in line with the Constitution and gender equality. And, and also, um, the plans that they have for how the draft would work right now, they really wouldn't work. I mean, they're, they're talking about giving people like 10 days uh, notice to uh, you know, file a claim for conscientious objection or hardship or medical problems or things like this. And the system, based on their current plans, uh, would probably collapse of its own weight. So it's, in many respects, it's the, the military, on the one hand, you know, says we have this draft. We know the military you know, planners have actually said we rely on the draft we, on knowing that we have this potential pool of people that we could draw upon if we needed it. And that basically uh, allows them to be a little bit more you know, adventurous in their war planning and things like that. And yet the system they've put together uh, really wouldn't work, uh, get stalled in court challenges and all sorts of things. So, so on the one hand, we're causing all this problem, these, this damage to all these people, you know, who are having to face this registration for uh, a system that, first of all, is fundamentally an evil system to begin with in terms of forcing people into things they wouldn't be inclined to do. But secondly... It's a false, uh, for the military, it's kind of a false sense of security from their point of view, because if they think that the draft could be cranked up to provide them uh, with a bunch of folks, uh, it's not going to happen, at least not going to happen very quickly or easily. May I add to that as well, Tori? Yeah, absolutely. What we know is that the list that Selective Service currently has of the people who register is incomplete and inaccurate. So even if we were to have the president request that Congress enact the legislation to enable a draft, we know that Selective Service would still have to start from square one in compiling a list of people that would be included in, uh, you know, being pulled into uh, the net of a draft. So the list is completely useless, which means that the Office of Selective Service is a $25 million waste of money and also, you know, something that continues to violate people's human and civil rights, even in the absence of a draft. Uh, We've also heard in federal testimony that the difference between what they call getting boots on the ground, so training and enabling soldiers who are drafted to be ready to participate in a war, the difference between doing that with the current list that Selective Service has or compiling a list on the day a draft is enacted, the difference between getting soldiers ready to participate in a war is 10 days. 
So this wake of people, millions and millions of people who have had their rights violated, who have had their access to public resources stripped from them without due process is completely meaningless. It does nothing to advance any of the quote-unquote national security goals of the country. So, Bill, you mentioned, you know, people not wanting to register for selective service because it's against their values or or for whatever reason. Um, If they don't want to register for selective service for those reasons, what can they do? Uh, And Maria, if they want to uh, advocate for the end of registration reform, what are their options? If you don't want to be registered, you actually have to be conscious about whenever you fill out a form for the government, because the fine print on a lot of these things might actually get you registered. And our office does get calls from people who say, I just got a registration acknowledgement from Selective Service, but I never registered. So for people who feel that it's wrong to be registered, they really need to actively not register because you could conceivably uh, get yourself registered without even knowing it. But if you are a conscientious objector and you feel that you would be willing to, say, do alternative service if there was a draft and you want to trust the system to act fairly, then there are things that you can do if you are going to register to get on record as a conscientious objector. And one of them would be to uh, write it on your registration card. And we would recommend that you get a copy of that registration card so that you can show you know, that you had made this acknowledgement from the, from the time you registered. And then after you register, uh, Selective Service will send you a registration acknowledgement, which is basically a computer printout of the information that they asked for on the registration card. And the instructions say that if anything is incorrect or if anything is changed, uh, notify Selective Service within 10 days. And this registration acknowledgement will not say anything about conscientious objection because that's not one of the things that they asked about in the registration form. So what we would recommend you do is fill out the change of information form and say, uh, yeah, you made a mistake. You did not acknowledge that I registered as a conscientious objector and send that in. And there's a good chance you'll get a form letter from them saying something like, well, we're not really classifying anybody at this time. We're not collecting information about classifications. But if there ever is an active draft, you'll be given an adequate amount of time to file and document your claim. Now, remember what I said a few minutes ago, what they think is an adequate amount of time is 10 days. But in any case, hang on to that letter, too. This is all evidence that you tried to get on record from the time you registered with Selective Service. The other thing we would strongly recommend you do is start right now to write up a statement of your values and your beliefs. Our website, the Center on Conscience and War, has some information about this. We have a worksheet uh, on war objection that's actually based on the uh, questions that are on the Selective Service form for conscientious objectors. And there's basically three questions that a conscientious objector has to, has to answer. First question is, what do you believe? And of course, they're talking about what your beliefs as it pertains to participating in war. Second question is, how do those beliefs develop? You know, and in that question, you can talk about everything that helped shape you into the person that you now are. I mean, if you're religious and going to church or Sunday school was a part of shaping who you are, certainly talk about that. But you don't have to be religious. And, you know, people's values are shaped in many, many different ways. Sometimes it's books you've read or movies you've seen or, or experiences you've had. You know, out on the street, you've encountered violence out on the street. We actually had a call a few years ago, a, a conscientious objector we helped get out of the Army. He lived in Chicago. 
and he joined the army to get away from the gangs and street violence in Chicago. Once he got there, in his words, he said, I realized I just joined another gang. So think about all the things that helped shape you into the person that you are and talk about that. And then the third question is, how do your beliefs influence your life? And obviously, if you're active in a peace movement, go to marches and things like that. Those are things you can point to. But, but you know, you can talk about other things, too. You know, maybe you volunteer your time in a soup kitchen or something like that. You know, and, and you can point to things like this that show that the values you hold really do make a difference in the way you live your life. Thanks, Bill. And also, you know, the best way that we can support people of conscience, the best way we can support freedom of religion and belief in this country with respect to the draft is to end the registration system altogether. And if you are interested in reaching out to your elected officials in both chambers of the U.S. Congress, there are bills to repeal selective service and also to overturn these penalties. So to get rid of these punishments that that millions of people have been living under since the 1980s. So you can contact your senators. There's a bill that they can support. It's S-1139, and it's the Selective Service Repeal Act. And in the House, there's a companion resolution, H.R. 2509. So if you're so inclined and you feel like reaching out to your senators and your U.S. House member, your Congress member, your representative in the U.S. House, ask them if they're not already co-sponsors to co-sponsor this legislation and to help move it forward. It's the best pathway toward gender equality, and it's the best way to honor the rights of people of faith and conscience. Thanks, Maria and Bill. Those are all really great suggestions, and I hope folks listening will be able to take you all up on the opportunities to to both, you know, solidify their claim as conscientious objectors, if that's where they feel that they are headed, and also to support the abolition of selective service through that bill. Uh, We've talked extensively about the selective service system and military draft, but politicians keep telling us that draft is unlikely to be reinstated because we have an all-volunteer military. Uh, These volunteers are often recruited by the military branches in schools and at other places in the community, For example, I was just at a Nats baseball game in D.C. the other day, and there was a whole bunch of military recruitment tables set up in the main concourse, you know, recruiters trying to start conversations with people attending the game. And many students will also run into recruiters in their school buildings because the law requires that schools that receive public funding, which is most of them, let military recruiters have as much access to students as colleges or other post-graduation opportunities would. So uh, there's tons of military recruiters that have contact with our young people in the U.S. And unfortunately, this military recruitment is not harmless. And we at AFSC and other organizations like you all, uh, we get many, many reports of military recruiters uh, abusing young people, uh, participating in misconduct. Many of these cases include things like the recruiter encouraging the young person to lie on their forms about you know, their medical history, Uh, or to go off medications in order to qualify for service. Uh, This often has consequences for the young person later on. In other cases, we've heard of recruiters harassing people on the phone. After they say they don't want to join the military, they'll insult them and their families. They'll fill out web forms on their behalf so they keep getting contacted. Uh, In other cases, they'll actively tell recruits false information 
Some have been telling recruits that if they don't sign right away, they never can. Uh, Others promise that they'll get a certain rank or benefits, and then the young person actually never gets those. And anecdotally, we've heard that reports of these abuses has really ramped up over the last year. Maria, can you talk about why recruiters might be especially aggressive this year? Yeah, recruitment is down in all of the branches. We know that the Army has only met about 40% of its recruiting goal this year, and all the other branches are also struggling to meet their recruiting goals. There are many factors that the analysts are saying add up to this shortfall, but I'm going to put out there that I think that Gen Z this new generation of young folks coming up, I think that they are seeing the racism, the sexism, the abuse that is rampant in the military, and they are actively making the choice not to enlist. I think that the younger generation has lived their entire lives in the shadow of war and U.S. occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan and then military interventions in other parts of the world. And I think this is one of the ways that they are marking their opposition to that kind of foreign policy. And Bill, you've mentioned before that there are also issues with young people even being eligible to serve in the military. Why aren't they eligible, and what is the military doing to try to get them enlisted anyway? Well, there are physical and educational standards that people have to meet to enlist. The conventional wisdom is saying that this generation that's growing up on uh, cell phones and computers is not getting out and being as active as they should be. There's a combination of drug use, being overweight, and also because of the poor schools, not scoring high enough on the military qualifying tests. As of a year or two ago, the government was saying that only 29% of the recruitment age people would qualify, would meet the standards. Now they're saying that number is at 23%. And so this is part of the reason why they're having a hard time uh, meeting their goals. So the Army has just now started this pilot program where you can join, but they will send you to a um, fitness camp before you go to boot camp to get you in physical shape to go to boot camp. Uh, They also have an academic component to this program. So for people that didn't score high enough on the uh, qualifying test for the military, you know, they basically will teach them. And hopefully then if within a certain time period, I think they'll have 90 days to get up to the standards and then they can go into the Army. So the Army is actually actively, this is like a new pilot program that just started like this past month. Uh, They're trying to do this to, to get folks in who might not otherwise qualify. Thanks. Yeah, I've also heard, you know, the impact of the pandemic and the associated uh, great resignation and just really changing outlook for labor in the U.S. has had a big impact on the opportunities for young people. The the military does not like when young people can easily get jobs or they can easily pay for school because it really cuts down on the impact of the incentives that they put out there and forces, Mm -hmm. you know, typically they're trying to force people into the military through essentially a poverty draft, right? They love offering like tuition benefits and and pay, et cetera, that at this point, young people might be able to find for themselves, which which gives them less of an incentive to join the military. Yeah. And in fact, the loan forgiveness program that the Biden administration implemented, the recruiters are really not happy about that because money for college has been a major, major way they've got people to join the military. 
Yeah, that went uh, that went a little viral over the past week or so. I, and folks who are listening to the podcast may have seen uh, there was a lot of folks who tweeted out, you know, oh, this is such a bad policy decision because what is this going to do to military recruitment? Sort of <laughs> saying out loud, right, what we all knew was true, but which they, you know, they weren't willing to say out loud before. You know, this, the recruiters are feeling a lot of pressure to get more people enlisted, uh, which then impacts, you know, these these aggressive tactics that we're seeing. If a young person does get harassed or abused by a military recruiter, what can they do? It's really important for people to know what their rights are under military policy and U.S. law. And they can figure that out by calling the GI Rights Hotline or the Center on Conscience and War is part of the GI Rights Hotline. And we have a great website, girights.org. And you can check out our website there and you can give us a call to talk about what's going on with you. But it's really, it's staggering to know that a lot of these things that the recruiters are doing, a lot of the abusive tactics that the recruiters use are already against military law and policy uh, and military regulations. So it's especially troubling that this is just part of the culture. It's not like, you know, renegade recruiters. This is actually part of the culture and People are looking, their commanders, their their bosses simply look the other way at some of these complaints. So um, we're really excited about uh, the latest initiative in this respect that AFSC has. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, in, yeah. in my role with AFSC, we've been working to collect stories from young people who have been impacted by military recruiter abuses um, we opened up, uh, it's both a web form and a hotline. You go to www.afsc.org slash hotline to find both of those things. And essentially what we're trying to do is, is collect stories and figure out what's going on out there so that we can then take those stories and the trends that we're seeing to members of Congress and to the Department of Defense and try to get some sort of solution for the young people that are experiencing all of this. Because it is, you know, horrible to be harassed by an adult military recruiter in your school, to be receiving text messages, you know, with insults to your family and friends and, and yourself and your appearance, uh, to be told to get off medication. Like, these are really serious things that are happening to young people um, that, you know, not much seems to be uh, happening around. Uh, an interesting aside, I was going through some Department of Defense regulations the other day and Technically, they have a reporting system for this sort of <laughs> misconduct. Yeah, I hear I hear laughs there from Maria. They technically have a reporting system. I called the number, and it's a phone line that's disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the work we're doing right now is really to figure out what's going on to try to figure out also, you know, what the DOD is doing uh, through FOIA requests and, and figuring out uh, what their approach is and then proposing some solutions either to Congress or the DOD to make sure that this doesn't keep happening to young people in our communities. Tori, it's a wonderful idea, and it's it's. I'm hoping that the end result will be some accountability for this abuse, because you're absolutely right. Not only is it really uncomfortable and really scary to be threatened uh, the way some young people are, incredibly dangerous. I was working with a young woman several years ago who had asthma and she was going to a training exercise with other recruits. And of course you can't join the military with asthma. You can't take a rescue inhaler to basic training. It's just, you're not fit for, for military service if you need a rescue inhaler. This young woman needed a rescue inhaler and her recruiter told her to leave it at home. 
And of course, what happened at the training exercise was she had an asthma attack and required her rescue inhaler. So it's not just the threats and the harassment uh, being annoying. These military recruiters and these tactics are actually putting people's well-being at risk. And so it's really wonderful that there may be some light at the end of the tunnel here and some accountability. And of course, you could always block the recruiter's number, but I tell folks, yeah, but they'll probably use somebody else's phone to call you. But you can write letters to the editor. You can, uh, you know, a lot of uh, TV stations have these con- consumer advocate reporters, and you could reach out to them and talk about what's going on because this kind of stuff needs to get exposed, mm-hmm. and people need to know this kind of stuff's going on. Yeah, there's just so many ways that young people are impacted by militarism, uh, including here in the U.S., where we have these pressures to participate in the war machine, uh, the selective service system, which we talked about earlier, and military recruitment are two really direct ways that this pressure appears in our communities. And uh, I know you all at the Center on Conscience and War and us at AFSC are working really hard to try to mitigate the impact that these pressures are having on young people. Maria and Bill, if you had some final advice for young people who want to push back against the selective service and recruiter abuses, what would that advice be? Don't talk to the recruiters. And if they start harassing you, like I said, block their number, you know, make a big issue of it and reach out to your members of Congress, you know, talk to them about what you're experiencing and say, we need to change our government's policies about these things. Absolutely. And I think it's also important that we remember that collectively, we are already pushing back. The military works so hard. They fund music videos. The Pentagon literally funds music videos. They fund major Hollywood movies. Uh, They are at our sporting events, as Tori mentioned, at the Nationals game. They are at local youth events like paintball competitions or high school sporting events. They are literally spending billions and billions of dollars, and yet They are failing to recruit up to their numbers. And when you break it down, they're failing to sell militarism to us in general. Only 1% of people will actually join the military. If you add veterans to that number in the U.S., it's only 7% of the people that have ever been in the military. So it's a very teeny tiny number. Yet the messages of militarism are so pervasive. They surround us and they're put into our culture and into our consciousness in so many different ways. But what I love to see is that whether it's actively or just by default, the people have already widely said no. We have been given the choice and the vast majority of us have already said no. We will not fight. We will not kill. Well, thank you both for sharing your expertise with us on all of these issues and for all of the work you do every day to get people who have conscientious objections to war the the resources that they need. For folks listening, if you want to get in touch with Maria and Bill, the organization is Center on Conscience and War, and their website is centeronconscience.org. There's tons of really great resources and all of these issues available. But thank you both so much. Thank you, Tori. Thank you for leading us through this conversation today and for all the work you are doing with AFSC. Yeah, yeah, that's really important work.
Tori, thank you so much for facilitating this fascinating and thorough conversation. And thanks a lot to Maria and Bill for participating too, and for the very important advocacy that you do. When I think about selective service, the, the military draft, and even the broader problem of militarism as a whole, I often think of it like this. I think about how our nation seems to live at this weird intersection of both fear on the one hand and something like hubris on the other. On the one hand, believing that the world is so fraught and dangerous that we have to be armed and ready to wage maximum violence at any moment. On the other hand, believing so completely in our own dominance and might that we would place our entire sense of security and our own ability to beat everyone else on the battlefield putting all our eggs in the basket of militarism and not taking any proactive steps through diplomacy or peace building to stop violence from happening in the first place. Fear and hubris, two qualities that are just about as anathema to a Christian worldview as any that you can find. The desperate trust that we place in ourselves to conquer and beat back every threat rather than following God's invitation to sit at a table prepared for us with our enemies. As the Center on Conscious and War has recognized, pushing back against the Selective Service Administration is like pulling another block out of the Jenga Tower of militarism. The more holes we poke in the biggest, gaudiest pillar of American policy, the more likely we are to see that tower topple and hopefully be replaced by a more just and more peaceful society that doesn't fight wars, let alone pressure and prod and force people to fight them. It's no wonder that the Church of the Brethren has long had a relationship with the Center on Conscience and War, both because of how non-participation in war has been important for Brethren historically, but also as part of that broader movement to end militarism and make room for the peaceful society that doesn't endorse violence as the solution to our problems and, as Tori so thoughtfully put it, does not accept that our well-being can ever come at the expense of the well-being of others. I really encourage you, if you enjoyed this conversation, to learn more about the Center on Conscience and War by visiting their website, centeronconscience.org. You should consider donating and take a look at their resources for protecting yourself against forced military service and for turning the tide on militarism through action and advocacy in your community and through the legislative process. I also want to give out another shout out to Tori, um, who hosted such an excellent episode. If you liked what you heard this time, you might want to check out her past contributions to the podcast, which can be found at episodes number 45, 58, and 68. All of these feature fantastic interviews just like this one, which are well worth the listen. Thank you so much for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast is produced by a bunch of people from across the Church of the Brethren who are all committed to toppling that tower of militarism one Jenga piece at a time. This episode was created by Jacob Krauss, who creates our music and edits the show, Suzanne Lay, who manages production, and Tori Bateman, who was our audio contributor for this episode. We'd also like to give a big shout-out of gratitude to Honor of Peace for sponsoring the podcast, as well as our congregational sponsors, Arlington Church of the Brethren, Warrensburg Church of the Brethren, and Beacon Heights Church of the Brethren. You can find us online at arlingtoncob.org dpp and on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe and leave a comment. 
Also, why don't you find and follow us on social media at DunkerPunksPod. And you can email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org with any suggestions or feedback. Lastly, there are lots of really great ways for you to be involved with the podcast. For one thing, we are looking for more congregational sponsors. So please consider sharing this content with your congregation and asking your congregational leaders to support our production. You can also email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org for more information on how to do this. Second, we are currently hiring a paid communications intern. So reach out for more information if you are interested or you know someone who might be. Lastly, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website and you should consider donating at bit.ly slash dpp underscore donor. Contributions go towards honoring the time and effort of our mostly young adult contributors so that we can live out our commitment to honoring young adult voices. Thanks again so much for listening and we hope you'll tune in again. Our next episode airs on October 29th and features Harrisburg Church of the Brethren and their involvement in Messiah University's Thriving Together Congregations for Social Justice initiative. Don't miss it.